Not too bad. How are you doing? Hey, I'm uh, surviving. Very different day than I thought I would have, but I'm here. So uh, I am already recording. So let's get right into it. Tell me what your day has been like. <laughs> yeah, well, I um, I showed up at the office this morning, and the trailer that I've been storing back behind our office, not storing, uh, had really only had it there for a day and had a friend coming to get it today, uh, was gone. And the wheel chalks are still there. So I immediately texted him. I'm like, hey, man, did you come pick up the trailer? <laughs> He's like, no, call the cops. <laughs> So uh, I called the cops and filed a, a police report, and I've been looking through our neighbor's video uh, footage at our parking lot all day. So uh, you have something that I did not have. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of how my diesel Grand Cherokee was stolen in Montreal. but uh, I heard about it on the show. At least you have video footage of what happened. I'm, I'm very curious to know what happened to my Jeep. I bet, man, I've, I've never had something stolen before, at least that I am consciously aware of. So I can imagine if you don't have that closure, that's got to just eat away at you. So uh, I, I don't know if we speculated on the show, but my wife is uh, sometimes, oftentimes much smarter than me. And um, the scenario was that uh, we were parked on the street but directly in front of us was access to an alleyway. And so we were, we were parallel parked. And she was like, I bet you a tow truck just showed up, snatched it, and worried about like breaking into it and stealing it uh, somewhere else. Because if you were in a really busy city, it would be, I think, very easy to steal a vehicle off the street in the daytime with a tow truck and no one would be the wiser. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cause I mean, I, wow. I lived in Chicago for six years. If I saw a tow truck lifting a car, I wouldn't have said anything. Yeah, that's totally normal in city life. You know, like, oops, somebody uh, didn't pay the meter. So uh, when, when we called the, the city of Montreal and asked if they had towed the vehicle, they said, we don't, we don't tow vehicles if they're parked illegally. We would just write tickets. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, Man. like the, the big bummer was like, I had a, I had all of my original podcast recording equipment inside. And like, we not only did we lose the Jeep, which the insurance covered, but like I had a lot of stuff inside for the trip and, uh, that was the expensive stuff. Yeah, man, that's so frustrating. So you're, you're saying that the trailer was only parked there one day. Yes. <laughs> so they crazy. must have like people on the lookout for that kind of stuff or the person who stole it uh, called their or maybe there was a person kind of local that said, hey, a trailer just showed up. You should come steal it. Yeah, it, it has to be because I so the time frame is crazy. I went um, Monday out to my buddy's house. We're prepping our car for GLTC at NOLA. And uh, we're going to run at Barber this weekend. Um, we're doing an Apex Pro uh, Pro coaching event with a bunch of drivers coming in from out of town. Um, so luckily, we were going to use his enclosed trailer. But we had been shuttling the car around town because we took it a couple different places, had some different things done. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get my open the open trailer we've been using back to my friend Paul, who's on our race team. Uh, and he usually keeps it at the hangar at the at the airport. He's a, a commercial or not a commercial pilot. He's a a pilot for a big construction company. So they have a, they have a sweet Learjet, um, but we keep the car in their hangar. So I was going to take it back to them, but I couldn't get in the hangar after hours because it's all, you know, under lock and key at the airport. So I was like, I'll just drop it at the office. I've kept trailers there. I've kept like three or four trailers here for a week, you know, not even thinking about it. I have a tongue lock on it. No big deal. So I dropped it and left it here Monday night. Uh, yesterday was here all day and I left the office at eight o'clock last night, which would be Tuesday. 8 o'clock Tuesday night, and it got stolen at 10 o'clock. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Dang. How nuts is that? So somebody somebody scoped it out, saw it, and within 24 hours decided they needed to steal it. And then I just found out that when it was stolen, the guy didn't – I have a, a very clear vantage point, and he literally backs up to it, drops it down, connects it to the – you know, just drops the you know hitch on the, on the trailer ball and drives off like it's a normal – deal and there wasn't even a tongue lock on it so now i'm like 
I know I put the tongue lock on it. And another uh, employee here, uh, the Apex Pro office, um, was like, yeah, man, when I left at five, there was a tongue lock on it. Like that's, for sure. I saw it. It was yellow. You know, it that's stood out. Wild. So, so at some point, some dude, I bet somebody walked by with a crowbar and broke it off. And then either the same guy or his buddy showed up with the truck and towed it away. Man, that's a bummer. Yeah. Crazy. What do you think the trailer was valued at? Uh, it was a big tech steel open trailer. Uh, I think it's like 3,500 bucks probably. Bummer. Well, yeah. uh, I, I suppose you have the option to make an insurance claim on it, but if you get, if you decide to do that, then that's justification to buy an aluminum trailer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm I'm getting with the uh, kind of approaching the rest of the team. Like, hey guys, so we're not going to keep it in my office anymore, but uh, we should look at an aluminum car hauler. But I feel bad because it was one of um, it was Paul Paul Roddy who's. Uh, an awesome dude. He's on our, our race team as his trailer. Um, and so he, um, we're still working out if it's covered under insurance. And obviously I've, um, actually, uh, Baker's over at an office across the street. Cause this dude came down, he didn't come down. Uh, we're kind of like in an industrial part of town and there's, you know, streets that run by on either side of us. Right. And, uh, they're pretty busy, but the only way you could see the trailer is if you drive by, um, kind of like the side street would be the only way you would know that it was there or you came through the alley. Interesting. So like road less traveled. So this dude, the dude, whoever stole it had to have come down one of those streets to even know it was there. You can't I, see it from the main road. I'm speculating, um, but I think you have an untrustworthy neighbor who made a call. Hmm. Right. Because yeah. if you were just out driving around town, scoping out trailers to steal, um, like that would be, I think that'd be a full-time job. Uh, um, yeah. this might've just totally. been like, Hey, uh, there's a trailer here. I know a guy who steals trailers. Yeah. An opportunistic robbery. Yeah. That's yeah. There is a, there's a construction, a uh, big construction project going on a, like a block from us and we share an alley with that project. So a lot of the workers leave through that alley. Um, so actually when I'm testing apex pros, like a test, do a quality control process and go do like a test for GPS signal. Um, we test for, uh, the different things with the IMU, we test all the LEDs, we blah, 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 run through the process. And I stand outside where this trailer was and I see these guys drive past from the construction site. So now I'm like, was it somebody working? That would make the most sense for someone to know it was there. Cause even if you come by the side street, you would see it for like a second, right? Like it, you wouldn't even be able to be like, Oh, there's a trailer there that could be stolen. It would just be like, there's a trailer, right? Dang. It's not like a, so I'm betting it's somebody, so I've been I've been crawling around the neighborhood just looking for the the truck and the we'll see we'll see what happens. Man, I hope you see the truck. What do you have a plan? What you would do if you saw a truck that matched the uh, the video description? I mean, I assume you just call the police. But if they're like, yeah. I don't have it, then what do you do? Man, I don't know. I don't have a plan yet. <laughs> I don't have a plan. I mean, I, I, like whatever. What I told my wife I was going to do, she was not happy about. She's like, you can't hurt anybody. Uh, like, yeah. Well, I have to prove that he has it first, but I've always, you know, I think everybody at some point just from watching like action movies and stuff is like, I wonder what it's like to punch somebody straight in the face, like as hard as you can. Yeah. Uh, I probably so wouldn't that, do that. I'd get beat up. Yeah. I ha- I'm, I'm one of those people that like, I, I got in some, some fights in elementary school cause I'm hard headed and type a and a lot of personality. So I'd have way too much confidence, you know, race car driver confidence. Like, yeah, I can take this guy. <laughs> So the, we were not planning on talking about stolen trailers today. Um, we <laughs> were planning on talking about an event coming up. Uh, what's that event? Yeah, well, uh, the Apex Pro crew is coming to NOLA for Grid Life. Uh, I think you can take my place because I will be uh, in virtual attendance for this event. Man, I'm, I'm bummed, especially learning that you're such a huge fan of New Orleans. Um, I it's a bummer you can't be there. Love New Orleans. I just love it so much. And uh, anytime my friends go, I recommend a few restaurants, and uh, it's it's probably for the best because usually if we go to a track, I almost never leave the track. And if I was in New Orleans, I would feel compelled to do so. So. Maybe, uh, maybe just another time in the future, I will travel to my favorite city. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe, hopefully it's, um, going to become a regular thing. I guess, 
I guess we'll see in the future. But I was going to ask you about your restaurant recommendations because we are actually staying uh, Baker, um, Apex Baker, as we call him, uh, as our operations manager. And he lived in New Orleans right out of college um, working for Coca-Cola. And he's got tons of friends that are still there. So we're actually staying in an Airbnb that's owned by a friend of his for free uh, in kind of like the warehouse district area close to the French Quarter. Yep. Um, so we're going to be in and around downtown, um, just because that was where we were able to find affordable lodging in this case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we got the hook so, up, but. um, make sure I get my directions correct. Uh, let's see. There's that. I want to look at one more thing. I want to look at, uh, okay. So, the place that I'm thinking of is called Coop's Place, and it's on Decatur, uh, just a little bit down the street from Cafe Du Monde, uh, the famous, like, the big one. Uh, but Coop's Place yeah. has spectacularly good gumbo and jambalaya. Mm. It's, it's the best. Nice. Um, Write this down. Yeah. It's C-O-O-P, Coop. Um, Sweet. They usually have, I mean, it's like, it's kind of a dive um, but, uh, dinner time, you might have a line outside for 10, 15 minutes, probably. Um, but it's really good. It's, it's just like a bar. The food is cool. terrific. So, uh, if you know about Coop's place and you like it, let us know. And if you don't, you should go cause it's great. I, uh, I recommended right to, uh, to Eric Kaler, who is a, uh, uh, three, six, five racing buddy. Uh, the last time he was in New Orleans and he decided to go and was pleased. So I'll take that awesome. as a, uh, as a win. Cool. I'll run it by Baker. I'm sure he's got, I'm sure he has an opinion because every, everywhere we've been that Baker's gone, it's like you immediately, immediately get the hookups with friends and just all sorts of cool stuff. So um, I'm excited. Should be yeah. a lot of fun. And then uh, if you're feeling just like just a little bit bougie, you should uh, find a place to get a Sazerac because the Sazeracs are well, they're they're everywhere in New Orleans, and uh, if you like cocktails, they're they're kind of like quintessential New Orleans, but they're delicious. Awesome, I, I definitely will. The, the last time I was in New Orleans, I was in sixth grade, I think, and I went to uh, the Police, the band, had a reunion tour in like two thousand seven, two thousand six, two thousand seven, which apparently was a really big deal because okay. they broke up in like the mid eighties. So it was like a really big deal to go to this reunion tour. So I went down there with my family and we stayed in the French Quarter and went to the police uh, concert. So that's the last time I was in New Orleans. I've never been to NOLA. I live six hours from it, you know, but I've been and I go to the racetrack for a living. And I've never been to NOLA. So, so it's weird. I think it was you who said it um, when, when we t- you and I were talking about New Orleans before the show and you you likened New Orleans to. Uh, Las Vegas. And I think, I think a lot of people think that because they think of immediately of bourbon street and that's all they think about. Um, yeah, I like the, the art that's available from vendors for sale in Jackson square and the music and the food and like just, just everything. Uh, there's so much more in the city than bourbon street and it's just so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Las Vegas isn't really a fair, like apples to apples comparison. It's more of like the, I think what I meant by that is it's like the party. It's the place to go. It's the city to go to party in the South. No doubt for sure. Yeah. But I, if you were doing that, you probably wouldn't leave bourbon street. Um, right. Interesting thing about bourbon street. It is the only place that I have ever seen in my life in the morning. Uh, you, in a party town, you might see a street sweeper truck roll through and clean up trash and stuff on the street in the morning. Um, New Orleans is the only place that I have ever seen that uses a, uh, a truck that dispenses like foamy soap on the street, like <laughs> like foam soap. So you know, like, you know, if you were detailing your car and you were spray foaming your entire car, that's what the street looks like. And then like a second truck comes by and cleans up and like scrubs the entire street. It's crazy. That's cool. It's weird. Man. Yeah. What a, what a wild deal. Well, hopefully it's uh, there's a hurricane Zetas coming up through the Gulf. Um, I don't think it's going to cross through new Orleans, but hopefully there's no, uh, no damage down there for, for next weekend's event. I'm sure Adam's looking at, 
the weather forecast, like, oh boy, got a hurricane. <laughs> yeah, and then that uh, that couldn't be more grid life, actually. Um, grid life has a has a reputation with extreme weather in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> hey, and so I, I meant to ask you when we when we got to call uh, or got to got to chat. I've never been to a grid life event, which I know is crazy. And I've known Adam and Austin and folks with the, the show for for years. And I've heard all sorts of stuff about it. Obviously, and have tons of friends that have have um, been to events and are, are part of the part of the group and the culture. But what um, say I'm a maybe even in the listeners' shoes? If I'm a listener to the show and and me personally as well, what should I expect for my first event? Um, I think I have a general advice. I mean, you've been you've been doing track day stuff for a really long time and you've been involved in pro racing. So some of this will be old hat, but like, uh, I think people's biggest mistake when they come to an event, any event of ours actually is, uh, kind of leaving for the night, uh, after the track goes cold. Right. So Mm -hmm. I, I think that's the biggest mistake because you miss out on all the opportunity to get to know people. And, uh, in my mind, that's the best part. Um, I would not describe myself conventionally as like the person super eager to go out and talk to people, but um, it is amazing the number of people that I talk to that go to events uh, where it's like, oh, I, you know, I don't even know that person or like I'll mm-hmm. be talking, I'll be referring to someone outside of uh, any particular social circle and they'll be like, oh, I, I know who that is, but I've never talked to him ever. And it's like, you guys have been going to the same <laughs> events for the last four years. How do you not know each other? Um, so like there, there's just this really robust community aspect and everyone has a story that's really unique and interesting and, you know, hanging out by the grill or the fire pit and drinking a beer is one of the best ways to like, not only build your network, but like just find people to associate that are interesting. And so, um, in terms of like run of show, uh, what to expect is uh, expect to be flexible, I guess. Uh, Gridlife as, as an organization is um, a, a little less conventional in that we don't have a rigid schedule because we're not programming only HPDE, right? So it's not, it's not right. as if we're on a one-hour rotation, so to speak. Uh, anytime you're doing Drift and GLTC and Time Attack, we're talking about the possibility for uh, track cleanups or, or something, you know, mm-hmm. flexing the schedule 10 minutes or whatever. Um, and that, that stuff happens and it's just a byproduct of racing, I suppose. And, and so yeah. uh, for drivers who, you know, are, are kind of expecting a very routine event, um, sometimes grid life is anything but routine. And so, um, I mean, what to expect? Enjoy, enjoy GLTZ racing because it's, it's the best. Um, spectate time attack, uh, learn to appreciate how fast some of these cars are and the kind of wacky garage built engineering that exists. Um, and, uh, I'm, I believe drift is happening at that event. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think so. I, I think if you're not familiar with drift or you only see drift on the internet, it's really, it's, it's similar to me, um, to like the type of experience you get if you go to like a top fuel drag race event where like, it's not fun to watch on TV. It, it, it like, it doesn't do it justice. It's like drift and, and top fuel are similar in that they're both, you know, violent and visceral and there's just unbelievable noise and tire smoke. And it's, it's just, it's a thing. It's an experience. And, uh, drift is kind of like that. And, uh, yeah, if you, if you haven't seen it in person, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really, I'm stoked about all the above. I've, I've only seen drift in person at road Atlanta for global time attack and formula drift and watched a couple of practice days Well, I, and it is pretty awesome. Have you driven at road Atlanta? I assume so. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, grid life does also the, uh, usually on Sundays we'll do full course drifting where the drivers, you know, take the opportunity to, to drift any corner they want usually. And to me, the most insane 
like the moment I really understood how crazy drift was, was, um, I can't remember the driver's name comes out of turn 11 at road Atlanta starts a drift at the top of the hill and <laughs> slides the car all the way to turn one. And I'm not nice. talking like creeping around. I mean, he's hauling down the hill, uh, into turn 12 in the middle of a drift. And it was just like, like I, I have driven this corner and my only concern going down the hill is don't crash. And so like, <laughs> Yeah. Watching him do that and like the, the amount of car control and just like general craziness was like the moment that I understood that this is insane. These guys are nuts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's a obviously a huge element of car control, but the coordination um I think is is kind of similar to rally driving with like how many um how many different things you have to do in a really short time frame that on a road course um, even, even folks with like a super close ratio manual gearbox and like an S 2000 or a, you know, uh, a pure race car or something don't quite get close to. And that's that whole, like, uh, clutch kick handbrake back on the gas upshift downshift. Yeah, that's you know, a lot of steps, right? Yeah. There's a lot going on. And, and that's a lot of, um, I, I did a two day rally driving school and, uh, have never had more fun in a car and learned how to do a handbrake turn and all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, doing a handbrake turn, there's like, there's like five steps that you have to shove into like three seconds, you know, um, I'm sure drifting is the same, you know, you initiate, especially in a lower horsepower car, you have to kick the clutch to get the car, the tires to slide. Right. Um, and then, you know, your asses and elbows with your hands and you're pulling the handbrake to keep the car sliding. And there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into that. So tell me, um, I talked a little bit about maybe what you might expect. Tell me in your in your current situation, what are you looking forward to? Or, you know, are you, you know, is there a, a particular element that you're most like, I mean, obviously you're going to be excited for GLTC racing. Do you, do you expect that you're going to be positioned really well in terms of setup? Um, yeah, you know, honestly, I, I don't know. Um, I think the car, you know, I think we've done our best with the resources that we have in limited time frame to, to show up and at least have a, a car that's going to be, um, you know, reasonably competitive. It's obviously a new track for, for the series. So that's, that's certainly possible. But I think what I'm more looking forward to than anything is just uh, experiencing this, you know, grid life community that I've heard a lot about because it's so similar to the ethos that I have for every, just everything, the way I approach life, um, you know, find what you share in common with people and talk about those things and, and avoid the division, you know, let's, let's all come together and be better. And I think that's, I think that's how people learn because you kind of open up and let, you can only learn and it goes back to using data as well. You can only learn how to be better once you let your guard down and you're willing to be genuine. And I think community is what inspires that, you know, that's what, so I'm really excited because a lot of the work that I do, um, a lot of the groups that I go to, you know, I spend most of my time going to the track with different groups uh, as a coach or, um, you know, coaching specific clients of mine or, or to represent Apex Pro. And a lot of times, a lot of what I spend my time doing is helping people let their guard down, like getting to know people so that they can open up and say, um, you know, here's my, my breaking point. Here's where I was trying to turn in. And we can have some genuine conversations around their driving. And there's a barrier. And I think um, what I'm excited to see is I believe in, in the, the grid life community, that's going to be much less of a barrier because there's so much more of an emphasis and a culture around, um, you know, we're here as a team. You know, we're all here to enjoy this together. Yeah, it'll so, be um, it'll be interesting though. I mean, my my experience at um, at Barber with uh, with just track it. I think there is a there is a cultural element um, for for tracking in the South that's that's just slightly different than like your average <laughs> track day uh, maybe here in in Michigan as an example, and yeah. uh, like you know, just people setting up home base and like camping out, like really setting up and camping out. That's like, I don't know if that's, I don't know that it's quite as produced as it is down there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I guess to some extent, you know, I'm my, um, my exposure and my, like the way I go to events is so much different. I think than most people, because I have the platform of, of apex pro. And uh, a lot of times I know, if folks are customers, a lot of times I know them. And so most track events I go to, I just feel, I don't, I don't experience that at all because people recognize me or come up to me and we'll start a conversation. 
Um, but I totally get, you know, Zach and the, <laughs> the whole, well, uh, I, I don't know. We park like, here every event. Yeah, I, I right? think it's, it's a slightly different event, right? I'm sure that a chin event is a little bit different than a grid life event, but like, um, yeah. you know, I, most of my friends just like, you know, set up a, a tent and like their shit box is parked right in front and they just want to do like dirt bag shit with their buddies. And like, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we're about. Um, and so like the, you know, like the really, um, fancy stuff. I mean, it happens, but like, I, I guess maybe, um, like Andy Smedegard and that group of people, they're known for bringing like the junkiest looking stuff. That's also just unbelievably fast yeah, to, to the track. Right. Um, and I, I think maybe yeah. it's just like a different thing where it's like the quality of your equipment is, uh, like, doesn't buy you any credibility as much as being fast does, I suppose. Yeah. I, I like that, that type of environment a lot because that's how, um, that's how I got into the sport, you know, having to, having to piece it all together, right. And figure it out. And now I get, I am surrounded by folks a lot of times that have the means to be able to buy these, these fancy cars. And I think that attitude, um, can purvey across a lot of different budget levels. Like I think, I think a racer is a racer basically. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're playing with, you know, a million dollars a year or, you know, a thousand dollars a year sure. in your budget. It's the, it's the attitude and in, in the way you approach it. Uh, and I think when, I think a lot of times at purely HPD non-competitive events, you run into a lot of folks who aren't racers cause they're there to experience their car on the track. Sure. Um, and they may not be there to push themselves to the limit, but then you show up at any competitive event and the dynamics so different. Cause it's like, well, I'm here to compete. I want to win. Uh, and it, it's just a different approach, you know? Yeah. The, um, I, I guess the one thing that excites me, um, especially about our, our paddock is people are there to compete, but I think there is a desire to make sure that their, their competition is at their best as well. So like, you know, if yeah. you've got a, I don't know, you've got a Subaru, whatever, and a starter goes bad, like almost always Adam is making calls over the, the PA system. You know, does anybody have a, a what's it, what's it for a, a this thing? And <laughs> um, you'd be surprised the number of people in the paddock who not only have the spare, but are willing to help do the fix. Um, I know Absolutely. that at the last event, um, Sean Krebsback had a clutch issue on, I think, Thursday night or Friday night. Um, the final day of competition was Saturday and like, you know, he just, he found a clutch from, from someone locally and like he, him and a few other buddies just did the swap in the, in the paddock. Like it was nothing. He went back out uh, first thing Saturday morning and broke the track record for the class. So (laughs) that, I think that aspect is pretty cool. Um, that's that's a, maybe a one lap of America element as well, which is just like, you know, that there is no reason to pack up and go home, right? Like fix it and get out there and enjoy the rest of the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's super cool. I've, I've experienced that, um, even at the professional level where, uh, some of the people you're competing against are your, your closest competitors. Um, you know, like when I was racing my Accord and world challenge, um, one of the teams that was our closest competition and usually faster than us, they would help us with anything. Well, um, I think there's something to be said about, um, I, I really don't consider myself a hyper competitive person, but there are, there are times, right. And there is something to be said about knowing that your competition is at their best mm-hmm. and taking like pleasure in beating them when they're doing their best. Yeah. Like, it feels better. The, the win feels better yeah. because you know that everyone was at a hundred percent. Right. It's more meaningful. And, and you know that you'll you'll garner some respect from them as well, because they, you know, they, they can respect that you were at your best as well. So I, I would hate to see, you know, a competition default to like, um, you know, only one person and they they did a half hearted attempt and it was just like, well, no one else was no one else was was good to run and they struggled all weekend. Right. Like yeah. a win is a win, but you, you'd like to see everyone you know, be in an equal position to compete and put their best foot forward. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. On, on the, you know, competitive, um, front and GLTC, you know, I, it's really hard to say 
where our car will will fit into it. I don't think. I mean, it's obviously not a uh, it's not a developed GLTC car. So I think even if we, you know, build it to the letter of the rule, um, the class has developed over the past you know year and a half to the point or two years now to the point where there's you know cars that that really really work well and the drivers obviously know them and our car is going to be in a totally different spec than the last time uh, I raced it. So I think there's going to be a lot of just learning and figuring out. So um, uh, with your setup, have you, have you needed to adjust tune and also manipulate ballast or uh, is it just a, you know, a small addition of weight or a subtraction of weight that will make you kind of fit? Yeah. So honestly, what's, what's really cool is, um, on the 100 treadwear tire, which is what we're running, um, the Goodyear uh, 3R, um, we don't have to change anything weight-wise. Like, we should be right in the pocket uh, for competition weight. We might have to add, like, 10 pounds or run with a full, full tank of fuel just to be safe. Um, and the, the arrow that's on the car is already GLTC compliant. It's a WRL, um, World Racing League Endurance Car, uh, GP1. So it's, it's pretty much... With stickier tires, um, it's pretty much exactly compliant because it's a little bit out of the power-to-weight window for the WRL class. So that conveniently puts it like right into the window for GLTC. Perfect. Um, yeah, so it's it's pretty awesome. But um, most of the stuff we're doing now is to address the issues that we're having with the car from like a mechanical setup and an aero setup perspective, not really for GLTC specifically, but just because the spec is going to be super similar Um we actually can can get a little more aggressive with our splitter for WRL, so we're going to have a um, we're going to have a, a new splitter on the car. So it had a really weak splitter, and the aero balance was really rearward, and the car pushed at high speed. Um, and it also has a mechanical understeer as well that we're trying to trying to fix. Um, so most of what we've been doing is just to address those. It's not really to you know I think there's I think there's more time in making the car um, you know work the way that that I want it to work and that my teammates who also drive it want it to work than there is and um, really making any performance modifications. So uh, I'll ask it's... because I, I just uploaded the 2021 um, tech sheet today. What, uh, in terms of your setup, what, um, what like uh, modifiers or uh, penalties do you take for your existing setup? Like what's your, what's your competition weight? Uh, so competition weights, 2,900 pounds, okay. uh, on the nose. Uh, and that's with 220 wheel horsepower and hundred treadwear tires. Okay. Um, and we could technically run, I think up to like 275, uh, hundred treadwear tires, 275, you know, millimeter width tires, but our car is a stock stock bodied E36 M3 and it'll only fit 255s under it. Uh, but our wheels will really only hold 245. So we're on 245s. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so there's, there's really a lot of, a lot of potential there. So I I think what we're really kind of hoping is that, um, I can pick up the track quickly and that, you know, the car, the balance is, is good in a racing perspective to make up positions, but I really don't think, I don't, I mean, I think the, you know, Aaron and Emil and all the other guys, uh, Eric and those guys in GLTC will be quicker. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, we need to need to figure out how to put some more tire underneath. Where you are, you <laughs> might you might get the benefit of adding just a few pounds and take the uh, take the big tire availability that's uh, that showed up this year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I listened to the podcast about the adjustments, uh, you know, for GLTC and Tom Attack and everything for next year, and I think it's awesome that you communicate, you know, Adam and Derek, and you communicate the rules to everybody that way because it's. You don't really get to hear that when you read, like you read the PDF or the rule book, you're like, you know, you kind of can interpret it like, you know, the splitter cannot be more than three inches from the leading edge of the front bumper. You know, it's like, okay, I kind of technically get what that means. But then when you hear somebody talk about the spirit of it and it's like, well, this is why we have that rule. And this is well, it's, how it's funny. Seen it. It's like, um, oh. Couple days ago, Adam and I recorded an episode where we went line by line to go through the time attack rulebook, and it was planned to release uh, Friday the what day is it? Uh, Friday the thirtieth, but we decided to nix it completely because some of the things that we had intended to change were not going to change. So uh, the, I think most of the show would be really boring because, uh, in short, almost all the rules are the same as they were last year. So. Sometimes cool. that happens when you record something. It's like, uh, unlike 
in the case of Adam and Derek, the rules had already been modified and they did a, a recap on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were just going like recording the phone call that Adam, I, Adam and I had about the rule book. And then we were like, well, crap, none of this <laughs> is any good anymore because we're not doing it. But, yeah. uh, I think it's, it seems like, you know, reading the GLTC rule book, really simple. And, uh, you know, I reached out, so we raced against, um, in our car, the last time we raced, it was March, uh, for the WRL race at Barber. And we raced against the winning formula in our class. Uh, they brought one of their cars, one of their, um, case block Miatas and, um, between them and then, uh, uh, a couple of the other guys, edge auto sports, who has S 2000, um, Julian races that in GLTC as well. They're, they're properly quick. Um, I think we were only like, you know, my time on Saturday only qualified us for like fifth or sixth, uh, out of like 15 cars in GP one on Sunday. So we weren't really front running on pace, but once we got into the race, uh, and I was able to work with traffic, uh, me and, um, and Rob, uh, from the winning formula, he's got a camion as well. Um, we ran one and two for like two and a half hours Sunday morning. Uh, and we were like almost a lap ahead of the rest of the GP one field. Uh, and it was just a blast. Like he and I were just trading positions back and forth and he definitely had me on pace. He could pull away from me, but in traffic I could sneak back up to him and got by him again. And we kind of just like traded spots and we got out of the car, um, at the same time and went over to each other and like, dude, that was so much fun. Like this, that was absolute blast. You know, Adam and I have talked, um, talked about GLTC competition and, you know, to, to compete at the front is, is challenging, right? Like there is, there is a, an appreciable amount of dedication that it takes to win a GLTC race. Um, but interesting about the series is that, you know, if you are not competing for the front, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to get the opportunity to get some good racing in, right? And, and I think, especially at the grassroots level, I mean, when you have competitors paying to race and compete, um, if, if the competition were so lopsided, you know, where, where a driver could just say run away with an event because they're just that much better, um, I don't think that would be that interesting, right? Because you're, you're there to race as much as you are there to win, and yeah, I think absolutely. it would be boring if you weren't, you know, battling it out with people. And so I think those mid and even rear pack battles, they're fun to watch. Like those guys are going, yeah. guys and gals are going hard. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's, I mean, that's the principal reason I'm super pumped because um, I, I get to, I do a lot of endurance racing. And since most of my on track work is either with clients, you know, setting a data lap for some apex pro data comparison at a track day or, driving a stint in an endurance car, you know, an, an endurance race. Uh, I mean, I absolutely love endurance racing. It's super fun to me engaging the whole team and that sort of thing, but it's, it's obviously a totally different format, right? Where your so, objective is not always to pass the guy in front of you. It's maintain a pace or slightly improve your pace or, um, you know, conserve the car, whatever it is. I'm, I'm lucky that I get put in when we either have to run somebody down or we're trying to build a gap. So I usually get to race people pretty good, but, um, I'm really stoked to just, get in the format for GLTC and where it's, you have to make the move now and you got to be decisive and, and you can't, um, waffle on your decisions. But also I think it speaks a ton to the culture and I can't emphasize that enough. Like the the culture that's created around GLTC that, uh, people are okay, you know, acknowledging like, Hey, I'm either not a front running driver or my car is not a front running car or a combination of the both. So I'm running in the mid pack, but I'm having great racing and I'm not complaining that I'm not able to be at the front because I know, you know, I, I can look at myself and know my limitations. Right. And I think that says a lot about the series because as soon as you start classifying, you know, having a pro am and a bronze and a silver or a whatever to, di- to divide the class, it becomes harder to spectate and the media value decreases and it's harder for people to follow and you have to explain more. Yep. Um, but I think you have to keep that culture of like, Hey guys, um, here's a, you know, here's the path to get to the front. Look at how committed these guys are to win well, and I what they're doing to their cars. And maybe it was themselves. on the, uh, the GLTC rules show, but Adam was relaying that Tom O'Gorman was, uh, was, was talking about just how hard it was to win a race and it was too hard to win. And it's like, well, if you have a guy like Tom saying it's too hard, I mean, it's, it says a lot about the level of competition. Absolutely. 
And uh, I yeah. think there, there is no shortage of armchair, armchair racers thinking that they can come to an event like this and crush everybody. Um, yeah. But uh, to your point about endurance racing, I think I, you perhaps you'll disagree with me, but I think that endurance racing and time attack have more in common than you might think in that I find watching endurance race, racing to be excruciating and boring. And the reason is um, without like really serious com- uh, uh, storylines and commentary, it's very difficult to know like what the strategy is. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the same is true of, I guess, of time attack in that um, in endurance racing and in time attack, they're both very, very fun for the driver, right? Endurance racing is a ton of seat time and you're working on being consistent and like, you know, setting good laps, you know, minute after minute, hour after hour. And in time attack, you're working on doing the fastest lap that you've ever done. Both of those things are exciting, but from a, from a spectator point of view, I don't find either of those activities to be particularly exciting to watch. And yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially like spectating endurance races in real life. I mean, it's cool to get up close and personal to the cars and the pits and things, but like watching yeah. a six-hour endurance race is awful. And Yeah, uh, it, it, there's a lot to it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because it looks like an HPDE with faster cars. Um, yeah. and, and truly, I mean, the same is true of time attack. I mean, unless you have the backstory and like, you know, what each driver is going for and what the records are, things like that. It's, it's not particularly exciting to watch. And I do the commentary for time attack and it. The only way to, to make it really exciting is to be able to provide that backstory. Yeah. The, the difference is GLTC is exciting because you don't need to know what's going on. Every driver is trying to make every pass right now. Yeah. And so that's fun for the driver because it's urgency, but it's, it's easy to, to spectate and it's digestible, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, I think a lot of what makes endurance racing for me, uh, fun on the, I, I, I agree with you just like purely watching it, um, unless there's a battle going on or unless there's um, something that you're kind of personally invested in, like on the IMSA level, I have a lot of friends that are still competing there. And so I get pretty invested in like making sure that my friends are doing well and I like following them. Um, but I, I think understanding and appreciating the challenge of it is what, um, is what draws me to endurance racing. But, but I'm with you, like a GLTC race versus like an IMSA endurance race, watching one or the other is kind of like, well, and I mean, like, soccer versus football, right? It's like, sure. you can, my yeah. wife and I are both uh, fans of formula one and I'll be the first to say, um, uh, that that watching Formula One qualifying is the most spectacular time attack that exists in the world, right? Like it is, it is the craziest thing watching what those drivers do, and uh, the precision and the just the outright pace, going faster than any car that has ever gone around this track ever, is always going to be challenging. Um, yeah, but I I find most of the races to be boring, and it's not because. Uh, I mean, in part, it's maybe because there's not great competition at the front. But the other part is like the races are long and it it's it's just not that exciting yeah. to know that drivers are conserving the race or conserving the tires. And, you know, they might be driving hard at the end, maybe. But the same is true in an endurance race where like if the if if the gaps are too large, you may just settle for second place to save the car. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you're not just trying to win. And so like that element of it, uh, I think it, I think diminishes the competition a little. Yeah. I think from a media value perspective and like, a um, approachability and like bringing new people into the sport, I think endurance racing is a hard, a hard thing. But I think once you start to like become a, you know, a student of like motorsports history and you start to learn about, um, what's, you know, what I find truly interesting in endurance racing is like the technology and the, the teamwork and like the, of course it's an absolute blast to do it. So when I watch it on TV, it's more of like envisioning myself being there and doing it. And, and the legacy of Lamont and Daytona, you know, like I've been to the Daytona 24, like probably 12 times Man, and I always would, go with my I dad would really and like to go. certain people. 
Yeah, and it's it's a blast. I think the coolest thing from a spectator standpoint um, on an endurance race is you know well any Enzo event you get up close and personal with everything, but hanging out in the paddock at midnight and watching folks, you know, watching a car come off track and change a gearbox in the paddock. Well, I, is, I, I'm, is I'm awesome, sure I've said it right? on the show a bunch of times, but there was that one time that Wayne Taylor fe- uh, fed me steak at dinner, which was uh, <laughs> an experience that I don't like was so unbelievably weird that I didn't appreciate for how like abnormal that situation was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's another uh, parallel between time attack and uh, endurance racing, and that's like the stars, the car kind of emphasis where like uh, a lot of times, you know, obviously the drivers in both situations are still the biggest piece of the puzzle by a long shot. Um, But a lot of times what makes endurance racing attractive to people and when I find people that are into sports car racing, they're like, well, yeah, I like watching like the prototypes and the GT cars and all the variety and the Corvette I see on the street and some crazy spaceship looking thing you know, racing on track and time attacks the same way. It's like, you know, that Porsche 968 looking car that's over in Australia, that's wicked fast with the big aluminum four cylinder in it. You know, and like the, all the stuff that you see in grid life, that's got all this development in it. Like for us, for those of us that are technical and, um, especially have a, you know, more of an engineering background or, you know, like your background, that's, that's really inspirational and cool. And I think that's another, another cool parallel. Whereas with, Certainly there's that, you know, that exists big time within GLTC, which is cool. But on the face of it, it's like, it's super fun to watch, um, which I think is kind of like IndyCar. I don't know if you're an IndyCar fan or not, but I, I can watch a whole IndyCar race start to finish. Can you? Um, yeah, absolutely. I so uh, I will say that that's spectating in IndyCar. Um, and I've, I've said on the show how much I love Road America as a place to be. Uh, a couple of years ago, before Gridlife started doing uh, the big track battle events there, we went on a site visit, and we went for an IndyCar weekend, which I thought was cool. Um, but spectating IndyCar in person is tricky because you don't get any, usually you don't get any of the commentary that, that you mm-hmm. might get if you were watching on television. And especially at a place like, like Road America, uh, yeah. you, you don't get to see more than like, you know, a field of view of like a couple seconds on the track, right? Like if you're allowed to, or you're not allowed, you're, you are able to watch one corner, maybe two at best. And so like, sometimes it's just cars going by. Right. Really fast. (laughs) The, uh, the difference with when Ashley and I went to Coda, um, we sat, I think I'm going to look up a track map right now. I think we sat at the end, um, up the hill at like turn 11. Um, let's see. Yeah. Uh, we sat like on the hill at turn 11 to watch cars, um, set up for passes, like in the braking zone onto 11 and then round the corner and try and make the pass on the back straight with the DRS. And it was like, yeah. well, even though that's a giant circuit, it's still a great place to watch stuff happening because the passes during the race are going to happen there. But we were strategic in that we were at like, I don't know, turn five, six. We were like in the S's for qualifying because like if you want to see what a what a Formula One car can do, um, it's, it's oh, unfair yeah. to watch that's it cool. on TV because like the way the way the cameras pan and zoom, they don't look like the slot cars you played with as kids. But the reality is that's what they do in person. And you don't see <laughs> yeah. it unless you're in a place like the S is Dakota. Yeah, that's cool. It's uh, it's funny. I was watching um, or my wife was actually watching uh, Dave Letterman's show on, on Netflix that came out where he does this like long form kind of interview. And he does one with Lewis Hamilton. And um, I've, I've never been a huge Lewis Hamilton fan because I was always a Ferrari fan growing up. But I've always appreciated um, what I mean, obviously, he's one of the greatest. And I, I think it's I think it's important to show younger people that, you know, there's more diversity in motorsports and, and that sort of thing as well. I think he's doing a good job with that platform. But um, he was on he was being interviewed by uh, by Letterman. And he was trying to explain to the audience, you know, like what it's like being in a Formula One car. And he's like, I can't tell you. I wish you could just feel what I feel. He's like, it's it's insane. It's ridiculous. You you can't understand what it's like unless you feel it. You feel, you feel it. And there's no way for me to communicate that to you. But he's like, it's absolutely crazy. It's like your eyes are falling out of your head. All well, the time. I mean, on occasion, they do the uh, in-car video with like the um, some of the data overlay on screen. 
And, you know, there are plenty of instances where like the sustained G laterally is like more than three. And there are some corners (laughs) where it's like four and a half and it's like, okay, four and a half G is an insane amount. Um, I don't, I don't know if this will resonate with people who listen, but like think of your local County fair, you know, the spaceship that spins around that you like get stuck to the wall. Yeah. Okay. I think those are like three and a half G and those are like, they're spinning so hard. You can hardly move. Yeah. So, um, watching cars, watching formula one cars do that and knowing that, that no car has ever gone faster around this circuit is, is always going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's inherent interest in that. Uh, Like, I think that's just, there's just appeal. Like that's, that's super exciting. Um, and I, and I think that, um, I think GLTC's found their like, you know, the marketable, uh, kind of niche, like it's, it's these short, like, like Adam says on the show all the time, the banger, uh, sprints, you know, it's like, the, it's the beginning and the end just kind of pushed together. You well, know? I, I know that I can't uh, agree with that more. It's again, cool. people that like, maybe don't, don't compete with us. Look at the GLTC race format and they, they think about, um, a, an endurance event as better value. You get more seat time, uh, out of it. Um, and that I guess is uh, potentially true. Um, but I, I am a fan. I appreciate autocross and there is something to be said about like, you know, autocross isn't the best value for seat time, even though it's cheap, right? Because you might be in the car for like three minutes over an entire day, but you (laughs) are paying the money for quality competition. If your local club is strong and, um, when I think about GLTC, Adam, um, in the first year, I think our first race at mid Ohio was scheduled for like five or six actual races plus practice and qualifying. And by the end of the weekend, the driver said, no, that's, that's too many. It's, Hmm. it's too hard to manage. Like, you know, not, not only manage the cars, I guess, because you want to make sure that everything's perfect each time, but like the stress of the weekend was just like, uh, I'm just, I'm just so tired. Yeah. And it's, it's not like a three hour get in the car and just run a session endurance, but that doesn't mean that it's not like consuming while you're there for the weekend. Yeah. Well, I mean, having that many races, um, and I'm, I'm looking at the schedule right now for Nola. I think it's, I think it's really good value for money, not only for seat time, but like the thing that we place value on as racers is like that the, the racers high, like getting in the zone, you know, like that is addictive. Uh, and it's, it's like proven, you know, biologically, um, like being in the zone, being in a flow state is addictive and racing is a lot of like, I, I can't really get into flow at a track day anymore. Like I kind of just go into like autopilot, right? Like I don't have to be as focused. It's like, sure. a, I'm sure a lot of folks um, can relate that are listening that are, that have been racing for a very long time or have done pro racing. It's like you, um, as much as I want to, I still get a thrill out of it. It's still fun, but I don't get butterflies. Like I pull up to the grid and I feel nothing, you know, at, at a track day. Yep. I mean, my, my heart rate's slightly elevated, right? And, and this may surprise you, but even I get similar feelings uh, when it comes to certain elements of like the event production. I mean, like my high moment was in t- 2018 at Gridlife Midwest Festival. On Saturday, we had uh, the time attack bracket competition and drift like back to back to back for like six hours where I was working grid and like doing the back end of this like gigantic production. And for me, that was like the most stressful, uh, highest quality production thing that I had ever done in terms of like on track and, uh, like everything else now feels routine. Yeah. And so like even going totally. to a new event, if like, if you go to a new place is cool, but like if you run the same format continually, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's cool. But like that, that high of doing something new and like mm-hmm. just being forced to be excellent. Um, it's, it's hard to beat that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's the value of having, you know, four races in a weekend is that you get the emotion of a race start 
you know, you have to go through like emotionally, you have to go through the whole, like, okay, it's an hour to the race, right? I got to kind of start getting ready, right? I got to make sure the car is good to go. I got to make sure I have been drinking water. You know, you got to start thinking about that and that preparation kind of, um, you know, that, that never gets old. Like, like racers never, that never goes away because every race is different. Right. And everything can change in such a quick instant. You know, it's not racing is like, you have an excuse to like go out and, you know, within some confines of rules, just like go do whatever, right. You're trying to win make it happen. Right. You know, don't do dangerous stuff, you know? And, and I think that at a track day, there's still too many rules and there's still, and I think racers, when they get that, that feeling of like, okay, I got to get in, I got to get prepared mentally so I can get myself in the zone right away and be competitive. That's when the racers high kind of kicks in. And so having that so many times throughout the weekend creates value for money. No, I I absolutely agree. But I also like it, it builds fatigue as well, right? It's gotta be exhausting. If you're, even if you're there to try and like finish in the top 10, it's hard. Absolutely. You know, kudos to all the drivers who go out and do that. You know, this is Adam and I talked about it. There are, there are drivers and there are teams that in part maybe do this, uh, as part of their job, right. In that, like, um, the guys who work at the winning formula do this because they love it, but it's also affiliated in some way to a return on investment for their business. Mm -hmm. But like, uh, if that's all it was, those guys wouldn't put in as many hours as they do to, to like, to be perfect. And, you know, we talk about, um, the dedication it takes to come and to, to outperform in GLTC. It's like, well, they're like, this is, this is just what these people do, right? Like there is no casual, uh, uh, winners at the front. It's like, no, these guys like, when they go home from work, they like, you know, start to work on the race car. And it's not just about their social programs, but like you, I, I, I follow Erica till racing on Instagram and like almost every day he's out in the garage, like doing something to make the car a little better. And like, yeah. that's, that's his hobby. And he does it even when he's not at a track day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to do it. It's, it's hard to, compete at that level but when you love it like that and you enjoy um improving the system you know it's 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 absolutely addictive like uh our our crew chief this weekend uh, for next weekend in nola uh, is mitch cobb and he's been kind of slowly coming on board and doing more and more stuff with our race team but he's uh he's a he's a racer like from karting and did late models and all sorts of really cool racing stuff but he's got such an infectious attitude of like I'm going to make the car the best it can possibly be. And he's 10 times the mechanic I'll ever be. So he's really taken the lead on that. And that's just inspired me to, you know, get more prepared for the event, right. And be, and be ready to go. I'm pretty lucky that I get to be at the track all the time. And so the, the driving preparation is kind of learning some of the track nuances and thinking about what to, what to expect to see in the data and how I can improve it. And a lot of like visualizing, you know, just sitting back and thinking about, um, how I'm going to go through the process of learning the track and what my mental approach will be to qualifying and what's going to happen at the race starts and visualizing all that. So the time I get there, by the time I get there, I've kind of seen everything in my head, you know, like, and that, so, that's really what I get to stay focused on. Thankfully, I don't have to spend as much time on the car because I'm, I'm not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think on that note, I will say that, uh, grid life at new Orleans is coming up next weekend. That is, uh, give me exact dates. Hold on. Uh, November 6th through 8th, where competition, I think, is primarily on 7-8. Um, you're going to be there. Apex Pro is going to be there. Um, if you don't follow Apex Track Coach on, like, everywhere, go ahead and do that. And uh, one of the awesome things about using this board is that I can record, uh, record remote podcasts. So uh, if you don't have work to do during the weekend... I may give you a call from time to time just to check on you and see how GLTC things are going. Oh man. This will be like yeah, first timers experience of what it's like to compete in a GLTC weekend. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to do that. Uh, I'll highlight some of the stuff, you know, I've learned from um, looking at my data as well. And, and on that front, you know, we're, we're coming, uh, you know, I'm signed up as a competitor, right? So we're, we're there to just, um, you know, compete, be a part of the community, but, 
Of course, if you have an Apex Pro, especially, or if you're interested in one, um, come find us. You'll you'll be able to we have a big Apex Pro tent, and the car says Apex Pro on it, um, and my driver's suit says Apex. Everything's branded, uh, so you should be able to find us. But um, come ask your questions, and just um, we'll probably stay after hours and drink beer and hang out, and we'll be doing the same stuff everyone else is doing, fixing the car, making it better, setting it up, and uh, we're happy to help. Cool, man. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show, um, and. I'm very sad that I won't be there with you guys, but uh, I'll kind of be there by phone and by internet. So absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Travel safe. Awesome. Thanks, sir. Bye. See you. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at a grid live to say hello. Hello.